Good evening and welcome. I'm Sandra Peart, Dean of the Jepson School of Leadership Studies, and it's my very great pleasure to welcome you to tonight's event. Uh, I want to take a moment and recognize and thank Kristen Bazzio and Julian Hader, the co-organizers of this series, which has been wonderful so far, and I'm sure will continue to be so this evening. Uh, we are live streaming this event, so I'd like to recognize those folks who are watching us um, uh, from afar. It's wonderful to have you with us. Uh, and as well, I want to thank Nations Bank uh, and Style Weekly for sponsoring uh, this series with us uh, this year. It's now my pleasure to introduce Aaron Ganot. He's a senior who's double majoring in leadership studies. That, of course, is not a surprise, but also in computer science. Uh, I love the combination. Uh, he's a native of Atlanta, and Aaron has served as a head resident uh, with the Office of Res Life at the University of Richmond. He's a peer advisor with the Office of Alumni and Career Services. He's a, uh, on our Student Government Association, we call it JSGA, uh, and he's a leader with Young Life. So he's very busy. Aaron spent his junior year abroad, the full year abroad, at the University of Edinburgh, and he hopes to work in technology consulting or business analytics after he graduates from the University of Richmond. Please welcome Aaron to the stage. Good evening, everyone. Uh, today I have the pleasure of introducing Yasha Levine, our speaker for the night. So, uh, Yasha is a Russian-American investigative journalist and author, uh, born in Leningrad. He grew up in San Francisco and now he lives in New York. Um, he's a former editor of the Moscow-based satirical newspaper, The Exile, and author of several different books, including Surveillance Valley, The Secret Military History of the Internet, published in 2018 to critical acclaim. Mr. Levine was also previously a correspondent at Pando Daily, an online news site that covers Silicon Valley and startup technology companies. And he's also written for The Wired, The Nation, Slate, Times, The New York Observer, and more. Please join me in welcoming Yasha Levine to the stage. I have to uh, press this button, so excuse me. I think that should be on. Uh, thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure. It's an honor. Um, I didn't realize uh, that they were going to ply me with alcohol uh, right before the event. <laughs> so I'll just, um, if I start slurring or, um, or do some otherwise, uh, start screaming obscenities maybe. So just excuse me. Um, let's see if I can figure out how to work this thing. Ah, here it is. I, um, I'm doing something um, a little different today. Uh, I want to start out the, um, the presentation with something a bit lighthearted, because um, it's, it's not the most of, you know, the, the secret military history of the internet, and the counterinsurgency history of the internet is not, is not light fair. So I figured I'd uh, start off with something a bit, a bit more fun. So I have a little video for you. And just uh, let me see if I can set this up here. Uh, yeah. All right.
<laughs> um, yeah, the internet. It started so pure. It was so magical not that long ago. Um, but that sheen is, I think, starting to come off a little bit. Um, more and more people are concerned about the internet. They're afraid of the internet. And that's been especially true um, in Washington, D.C., just not far from here. <laughs> that's putting it mildly. Um, a big chunk of our political class, it seems, is convinced that the internet has been hijacked. Um, they're convinced that what used to be a glorious democratic technology um, has been weaponized by a hostile power and turned into a weapon a weapon of influence, a weapon of subversion, and a weapon of meddling. A weapon so powerful that it was able to throw an election. Um, throw an election, of course, and get uh, President Donald Trump into the White House. Some call this hijacking an act of war. That's what my local congressman uh, from New York, uh, Jerry Nadler, called it. He insisted that it was the equivalent of Pearl Harbor. Um, that the meddling that happened over the internet, the Facebook ads, the Instagram ads, and maybe even the hacking of the emails, was an act of war on par with uh, that which uh, dragged America into, into World War II. Um, others compared it to you know, slightly less um, uh, grandiose things like 9-11 and things like that. Um, that's how bad this weaponization of the internet was. And everywhere you turn for the last three years, and almost four, um, you hear claims that what happened in 2016 was unprecedented. Never before in the history of mankind had the internet been used to influence people. Never before had it been turned into a weapon uh, like that, a weapon of influence. Uh, well, at least not until the Russian government came along and got involved in 2016. You know, so at the height of this hysteria, I was actually finishing up my book, um, Surveillance Valley. Uh, traces the history of the internet back to um, the Vietnam War and the counterinsurgency campaigns um, that surrounded it. And watching this outrage, um, I couldn't help but just shake my head. The truth is that the internet has always been a weapon. It was designed as a weapon, and it remains a weapon today, a weapon of influence, of surveillance, of political control. Um, it goes all the way back to the beginning of this technology, all the way back to the 1960s, uh, when it was being built by ARPA, the Pentagon R&D wing that we now know as DARPA, or the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. Um, it was an information weapon then, and it remains an information weapon today. But today it's, of course, vastly more powerful in its current privatized and commercialized form than anyone in the 1960s or 1970s could ever have imagined. Um, but watching this discourse about the internet today, it was clear that we've been sold a myth about this technology. 
And uh, I have to hand it to them. It's, it's been a very cle clever and extremely uh, effective marketing campaign um, waged largely by Silicon Valley. And it achieved um, seemingly the impossible. It rebranded a military technology, a technology built by the military, uh, built by military contractors working for the Pentagon into something democratic and egalitarian, into something utopian. A weapon sold as a technology that would change the world, or that promised to change the world. Um, I know these promises very well. I'm, um, I believe in these promises. See, I was born in the Soviet Union, and my family ended up uh, in America, in San Francisco, right as the dot-com bubble was heating up in the 1990s. I was only nine, year, nine years old at the time, um, and we were political refugees who had fled a failed utopia. Behind us, the Soviet Union was breaking apart. Communism had failed, and the dream was dead, and, had been and it was fast turning into a privatized nightmare. But in San Francisco, um, I, we learned that there was another utopia at Cannes. Another utopia was coming. Technology would solve all our problems. Technology would bring into being everything that communism could not. This new technology, combined with a new kind of high-tech capitalism, would drive boundless innovation. It would end inequality and corruption. It would facilitate a new global democracy a place where egalitarianism, transparency, and accountability ruled. Some predicted the end of governments as we had known them altogether. I mean, what use are governments if we are all connected in this platform of a global democracy and where we could vote directly and make decisions directly for ourselves without the need for mediators like governments or bureaucrats or elections? These things would be a thing of the past. And if you go back and, and read some of the predictions, I mean, I think we have a cover here of Wired Magazine. Um, you'd be surprised, I think, today. Uh, they were really off the wall. Uh, I, I think if someone fell asleep or fell into a coma in the 1970s and woke up in the 1990s, they'd probably think that, they, that America was in the grips of some kind of millennial cult. Because you know, technology and the internet was supposed to change everything. I mean, here's this cover from 1997 that predicted that uh, the economic boom would never end. It would continue forever. Forever. Because the internet and, and network technology and computers fundamentally rewired the way the world worked and the way that economies worked and that all rules did not apply. That's how radical this stuff was supposed to be. Um, and a lot of people around me uh, in the immigrant community uh, where I grew up in San Francisco uh, and as a Soviet immigrant, I think I, uh, I, I mean, I doubly believed it. The image of America to me um, became inseparable from the promise of this technological revolution. And I pursued the dream like a lot of other uh, Soviet immigrants uh, in America and in California. I worked at a startup right out of high school, and uh, I then went to UC Berkeley to pursue, um, to study computer science. To me, and a lot of people like me, we believed that a new and better world was just around the corner. Of course, um, that didn't really work out that way. Work out as expected. The dream didn't quite come to pass. Looking back um, to that time, to the promises of that time, 
and looking at the world today, it's pretty clear that the world is a lot more messed up today than it was when I first came to America at the dawn of the Internet Revolution. There's more poverty today than there was back then. There's more homelessness. Uh, there's more wars. Pollution and environmental degradation. All of those things have gotten a lot worse, not better. And the Internet itself, of course, has not really lived up to its democratic promise. Instead of fostering a more egalitarian society, it's become dominated by powerful monopolies. And it gave rise to the most, to the richest men alive today. If you look at Forbes, seven out of the ten uh, richest men in America come out of the tech industry. That's a little too early. Excuse me. Like I said, it's not going to be a very happy lecture. So that's why I felt like I needed to do that little bit at the, at the, at the beginning. Um, anyway, these guys, you know, uh, from, from Mark Zuckerberg to Sergey Brin to Larry Page, they make their money by spying on us and by selling our attention to the highest bidder. That's their business model. And of course, on the back end, on the back side, they work uh, with intelligence agencies and America's uh, national security apparatus. Um, their platforms have become a playground for spies and a playground for, for, for the kind of the nastiest actors uh, in the world today. And of course, they become a field of battle in the modern uh, geopolitical struggle. You know, the Internet is a dangerous place, and a lot of parents uh, don't let their kids go on there un unsupervised. It's, of course, a long, we've come a long way since that video that I showed, that I showed right? Um, we use the Internet for everything, or, or for just about everything. But it is not a place where we have much power, right? Or any kind of real power. We're just users. And despite its seemingly chaotic exterior, the Internet, the wires, the data centers, the infrastructure that underpins it that we don't really interact with and that we don't really think about very often, all of it is private property. We, if you think about it, don't have any rights there. We're there at the, uh, at the whim of the companies that, that own that infrastructure and control it. So the question is, what happened? Why did this supposedly utopian technology turn into what we now interact with as the Internet? Where did our understanding of it go, uh, go wrong? Why do we get it so wrong as a society? Um, to understand that, or, or to try to answer that question, of course, blew through that slide. Okay. Told you I drank a little bit. Um, all right. To try to understand that and to try to answer that question of where the internet went wrong, or what happened to it, where did it go astray, um, we have to strip away all the mythology. Uh, we have to strip away the mythology that, that's grown up around it and try to go back to the beginning, to the 1960s when this internet was created by the Pentagon. Um, and to go back to that place, we have to put it into context a little bit because, I mean, I know some people here are, are younger, maybe not, don't, don't even remember this, this time and don't even remember when there wasn't an iPhone. Back then, America was still a relatively young global empire. An empire that was overseeing an increasingly um, chaotic world. Of 
course, the conflict in Vietnam was central, but the U.S. was facing conflicts and insurgencies all around the world. Uh, conflicts that ranged from Southeast Asia to Latin America to the Middle East and, of course, to the Soviet Union. Um, it was also an increasingly turbulent um, time uh, in American domestic politics. Um, domestic politics were increasingly violent and um, seemingly revolutionary. There was, of course, a, a powerful anti-war movement that was emerging. There were powerful left-wing organizations. Um, and there was, of course, the civil rights movement and militant black activism that was um, active in America. And there was a, all of this was, seemed to be part of a counterculture um, that seemed to be rejecting everything that America had, st had stood for. Um, we forget that today uh, with this focus on terrorism, but that back in the, in, the, in the 70s, there was almost a bombing every single day in, in America, carried out by domestic political groups like the Weather Underground. Now, of course, um, in the political establishment and in American, in American military intelligence services, um, people looked on this and they saw a vast communist conspiracy. They saw a force that was expanding globally, taking over Korea, taking over Vietnam. But they also saw a force that was expanding into American society, funding and directing local political movements um, that what many saw as an attempt to undermine American society from within. Um, now, America's uh, slightly over-paranoid generals um, saw this as a new kind of war that they were facing, that America was facing. It was not a traditional war that you could fight the old-fashioned way. You couldn't drop a nuke on it, or you couldn't really send troops into it, or, or, or even a tank division. That's because the combatants, um, they didn't necessarily wear uniforms. They did not necessarily march information. They were part of an insurgency, right? And that meant that combatants were part of the civilian population. They had merged the civilian population. Whether here or in Vietnam, the enemy blended in with society from which they came. So how do you fight this new kind of war? Who were these insurgents? What made them tick? What motivated them? And how could they be uncovered from the rest of the population? These are questions that dominated thinking at the time. And in certain rarefied military circles, it was believed that the only way to fight this new kind of war was to develop a new kind of weapon, a computer-based information weapon that could help the military make some sense out of the chaos. The task ultimately fell to a little-known Pentagon outfit known as uh, ARPA, the Advanced Research Projects Agency. We now know it as DARPA. There's a D uh, added for defense at the very beginning. ARPA had been set up by uh, President Eisenhower in 1958 to catch up to Soviet advances in missile technology in the wake of the launch of the Sputnik, the first man-made uh, satellite. It was, ARPA was launched to pursue mi uh, missile technology. But by the 1960s, most of its missile projects had been transferred to NASA, a newly created civilian uh, space agency. Um, 
And at the time, ARPA reinvented itself as a counterinsurgency agency. The focus of the ARPANET was Vietnam and Southeast Asia, the first focus. Perhaps um, um, it pioneered the use of um, first-generation drones. Uh, these drones are not what you'd, um, what you'd think of as a drone today. I mean, they were essentially uh, helicopters that were powered uh, by this remote control that would be housed in a, in a Jeep. And the Jeep would have to follow a helicopter with a you know, giant radio control. But they did try, right? Um, and of course, they, uh, ARPA was involved in sending scores of social scientists uh, into the jungles of Vietnam and into the, into the villages of, of Thailand um, to, to study the peasant population and to understand what made some peasants rebel and other peasants not rebel. What, what, what was the heart of this insurgency? Um, I, and of course, the, the most controversial program that ARPA was involved in was, um, was um, codenamed Project Ranch Hand, uh, which involved spraying Agent Orange over huge uh, tracts of Vietnam jungle. Um, this, this, this chemical compound was produced by companies like Dow um, Chemical and, and Monsanto, and it was designed to destroy um, foliage and any kind of living matter, for that matter. Um, in order to deny North Vietnamese fighters uh, jungle cover. This is a major problem for the military because the jungle essentially hid the enemy from, from the air and made it impossible to bomb targets and to see what was going on on the ground. Agent Orange is, of course, extremely controversial and it continues to be, continues to be controversial today uh, because it turned you know, giant, huge chunks of Vietnam into these barren moonscapes. Um, and the, the chemical compound is still in the soil and it continues to cause all sorts of um, birth defects that are pretty, pretty horrible. But that's, uh, again, like I said, the video at the beginning. Um, so jungle cover was a serious problem for the military, especially for the US Air Force. And so um, another project that ARPA worked on was uh, designing a digital surveillance network for the US Air Force. They called it bugging the battlefield. And it involved um, dropping wireless sensors uh, in Laos uh, along the Ho Chi Minh Trail uh, that was used to supply weapons and troops into, into South Vietnam. And these wireless sensors would detect uh, motion on the ground, uh, would detect uh, sound from passing convoys, and were supposed to even detect human urine. So if someone you know, on the side of the trail would relieve themselves, it would detect that and would send it back wirelessly to a relay station that then would then re redirect it to a control station. And you know, people would sit there with a map of, of, of Vietnam and Laos and they'd see uh, you know, a, little, a little light would blink and would activate a certain region of, that, of the jungle. And then so you can call an airstrike into that. So ARPA was involved in, in, in building that system. And while it was doing that, it, was also, uh, it also launched, um, ARPA launched a program that would eventually spawn the internet. This program was headed by uh, a guy named J.C.R. Licklider. I keep forgetting to advance these things. Okay, here's the Vietnam War. Uh, we're still on the Vietnam War, all right. Uh, no, wait, no. Uh, there's, there's, uh, there's problems in America. Oh, there we go, all right. He's the man, all right. Uh, so, um, uh, ARPA uh, in 1963 launched this program that would later become the, that would in due time become the internet that we all use today. It was headed by this man, uh, J.C.R. Licklider, um, 
from what I could tell, he, uh, was, had, a, he had an addiction to Coca-Cola. Apparently, he drank a lot of Coca-Cola in his day. Um, but more important than that, he cut his teeth um, working to build America's first national computer-based air defense network. It was called SAGE, and it was a, this monstrous network. It was an incredible thing. It was powered by these giant IBM computers that were not, not even, I'm not making this up, they were each an acre, they took up an acre of space, each of these computers. And there were two computers in each station in the, housed in these nuclear-proved uh, concrete bunkers that were um, dispersed throughout America. And this was the first um, computerized air defense system that America built, and it would grow into what we now know as NORAD. He worked on, that, on, that, on this computer-based uh, radar system, and he became convinced that this was the future. Um, he was a techno-evangelist uh, in those days. They didn't call him that, but that's what we call him today. And he ardently believed that computers were a necessary part, uh, would be a necessary part of modern warfare. Um, he believed in computers, and he believed that computers were necessary to fight wars in the modern age, but he looked around and he believed that the military was going about it wrong. Um, building computer systems for each new application, uh, whether it was for detecting troop movements in Vietnam, or um, you know, building an air defense um, system to protect America from Soviet nuclear attack, that was not the answer. Building these customized kind of systems from the ground up was not the answer to him. What he believed was needed was a universal, interactive computer network platform. Um, computer technology that could connect pretty much any kind of computer um, and then could then be customized on top of that to carry out whatever task you needed. Whether that was tracking enemy aircraft or um, compiling databases on subversives or building predictive systems to predict revolutions, which is what um, which was what actually people wanted to do at the time. They wanted to, to, to use data that was coming in from all over the world to predict unrest and predict revolutions. But to him, the, the, universe, the system, this universal system, this universal computer system connected to a network was key. And so, um, and so he, oh, 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 that's the sage. Uh, that's, that's the first, uh, I keep forgetting to, Press the button here. Um, I'll, just, I'll just explain. All right. So this is, uh, this is the first uh, 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 nationwide uh, air defense system that America built. As you can see, uh, this is the first workstation, actually, and the first mouse. Uh, it, was called, it was called a light gun. And you could point at the screen. It would bring up menus and things like that. There you go. And, and, then, and then and on the right, oh, there. And this is the, uh, the system that was built in Vietnam that could monitor the jungle. Uh, with these uh, wireless sensors and then could wire that information back to uh, the command post and then that command post would call in uh, uh, an airstrike on that part of the jungle. And uh, here's a very hip looking man with, a, with what seems to be a two-handed mouse. Um, but I'll get to him in a second. Um, so. Um, so he, the JCR Licklider, uh, while drinking his Coca-Cola, he really believed in the need to create this universal network technology um, that could then be used to carry out any task that the military or that the civilian, um, or that civilians wanted. And so that's what he set out to do while working for ARPA. 
he created a unit um, and he f started funding all sorts of research um, that would begin to develop uh, a universal uh, internet infrastructure. Um, and this in internet infrastructure over the years would, 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 would emerge as the ARPANET and the ARPANET would become the internet that we use today. But he didn't just fund network technology, the creation of network technology. He also funded the creation of inter interactive operating systems, um, you know, applications, things like that, that ran in operating systems. This was a very new kind of concept at the time. Um, and, and he funded, under his, under his program, uh, ARPA funded the development of the computer mouse that you can see here, and interactive um, graphical user interfaces for computers. Um, part of this program even involved developing early tablet technology, you know, the stuff that we use in our phones and in our iPads. All of that comes out of the ARPA program. And, the, and the, the idea for this thing, of course, was to create an underlying platform for American military planning and strategy. That this was not, um, this was not about the point of creating this technology, although this guy is not a, you know, a general. He's sitting, I think, at Stanford. Um, at, at the SRI, um, Stanford Research Institute. The point of all this um, was never to p empower individuals or to, uh, make indi or, or to uh, promote sort of personal democracy in the kind of way that we, think, that we as as associate with the internet today. It was all about empowering American military and political institutions. Uh, and so, you know, the ARPANET went online um, in 1969, and over the next few years, connected American universities, uh, military contractors, and the Pentagon. Um, oh, got it. And the uh, and 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 so you can see the the expansion of uh, the, the the first version of the internet, the ARPANET, from 69 to 1970 to 1972, 1977. You know, it was a, it was a national network with with a huge number of nodes on both uh, coasts. And these nodes, of course, included uh, connections to the CIA and to the NSA. So from the very beginning, this, this network, although it was not classified, um, it was very much intertwined with American military institutions. Um, and almost immediately, right, um, this network was weaponized against American civilians. Uh, and I'd like to just talk about one example of this. So in 1969, uh, J.C. Ehrlichleiter, the guy who s launched the program that would later create the internet, this man, um, proposed the creation of an ARPANET service, of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a new type of program that would be developed, that would be connected to the network, connected to the ARPANET, that would allow the Pentagon to ingest data, any kind of data, uh, and work with that data. And the focus of this program was, um, was about ingesting data and working the data about people and political movements. And to give analysts, government analysts, analysts the ability to sort through that data, to work with it, to manipulate it, and, and in, in ways that were not uh, available to them before. Um, and, and the idea was to be able to, again, like I said, when during the counterinsurgency was a new kind of war. And it was believed that only by studying populations, studying political movements, understanding what they were about, could you actually defeat these movements. And so this um, program that he proposed was intimately connected to that. It would allow analysts to, st 
to study movements and with, with the idea of hopefully maybe predicting them and understanding them, what they were all about. And the CIA, um, in a classified memorandum, uh, was a huge fan of, of this program because it allowed a CIA analyst for the first time to work with large data sets uh, in an interactive way. And um, it was easy to use. It was, it was intuitive. It was something maybe between you know, a mixture of Excel and some kind of database program. Right? This, is, this is way ahead of, the, uh, ahead of the curve because at the time, computers were still seen as essentially giant, powerful calculators that could, um, that could, that, that had to be used by trained technicians and who had to be programmed with punch cards. It was a whole science behind working with these computers. And so ARPA uh, and the ARPANET created a whole new uh, direction of, of, of computer technology. And what Licklider proposed to this program was an aspect of that. Um, the program that he proposed was called Cambridge Project, the Cambridge Project. And um, it was immediately used by the US Army to spy on anti-war protesters, civil rights leaders, and millions of Americans, actually, whose biggest crime was to just attend an anti-war rally or an anti-Vietnam War rally. Um, at the time, this was a huge scandal. The collection of this data was illegal. Um, and Congress demanded that the US Army uh, get rid of it and burn the files and burn the, the magnetic tapes that, uh, that contained it. But instead, what happened was that the US Army used the ARPANET and used this new program to digitize the, the files and to share them uh, with the CIA, the FBI, oops, too much, uh, the FBI and the White House. The, the ARPANET uh, had essentially allowed the US Army uh, to make its surveillance data indestructible. Um, this, this operation uh, was uncovered by an NBC reporter named Ford Rowan in 1975, just six years after the ARPANET went online. And it caused a national scandal, complete with congressional investigations and primetime TV reporting. Um, and here's Ford Rowan um, reporting on this stuff. And of course, he actually wrote a book about um, um, this program called Technospies. Uh, it was published in, I think, 1977. And it's very difficult to get a hold of these days. Um, these protests, um, so this, this, this program and the use of the ARPANET almost as soon as it was created to spy on American civilians um, caused uh, not only a huge media scandal and, and, and a major political scandal, but it also triggered uh, protests uh, in universities uh, across America. That includes Harvard and MIT. Um, oops. There we go. Um, protesters occupied administration buildings and had to be ejected by police. Protesters at the time saw the ARPANET, this early internet, even before the people really understood what the internet was or what it would become, no one knew that at the time. They saw this computer network that was emerging as the start of a, of a private public system of surveillance and political control, and they called it computerized people manipulation. That's, that was their term for it. And they understood um, very early on, and correctly so, that if allowed to expand unchecked, this computer network, the ARPANET, would be used to spy on political movements and to shape world events. Um, they weren't wrong, um, demonstrating um, the ARPANET and this project that was used to spy on, uh, that used the, the ARPANET to spy on Americans and to digitize the data.
So they demanded that MIT and uh, Harvard, which were involved in the project, you know, drop the, the research. And of course, uh, their demands weren't met. But they produced some cool um, protest art, like this. And on the right is a fake, is actually a fake sort of ad for, you know, for computers. I don't know if you can read that, can you? Anyway, um, so this episode uh, about surveillance, using ARPANET for spying on Americans um, almost as soon as the ARPANET went live, um, I stumbled on it by sheer accident while looking through newspaper archives and also um, archives of um, an ARPANET uh, program at MIT. And I was shocked to find that this early example of the weaponization of the internet had been completely wiped from our collective memory. Until I stumbled on it and, I, and until I put this in my book, um, not a single history of the internet mentioned this incident. You'd think that you know, an example of the internet being used to illegally spy on Americans in the 1970s, just mere years after the internet went online, would be a major event that would be included in, 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 in the history of the internet, but that's not so. It was just completely dropped from the history. And, you know, that's too bad. <laughs> that's because this history is vitally important. Um, it's important, it's just one episode, uh, but it's important, not just so we can know what happened in the past, but, but because this episode, in a lot of ways, uh, helps us understand the internet as it exists today. Um, back when this, this network was just being built, key people in development uh, of this technology dreamed and, and thought about that one day um, they'd be able to create a global system, a global network that could sit on top of the world and that could sort of watch the world in real time, that would make the world transparent for sort of the technocratic, technocratic leadership of America. Um, they thought that a system that would treat human societies um, and individuals much like uh, early, warning, early warning radar systems uh, treat hostile aircraft could maybe one day be possible. And they were right. They were right, because today we live in that reality. Private platforms like Google, Facebook, and Apple, I mean, they are that reality. Uh, they track our every move. And of course, they are plugged in directly into America's national security apparatus. And uh, on top of that, you know, just about every um, military and intelligence agencies in America today runs their own internet-based predictive system um, that takes inputs from every, any data source that they can get their hands on, whether social media feeds or more classified data. And except for a tiny movement back in the 1960s and 1970s that tried to put a stop to it and very quickly failed and faded into, 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 into obscurity, no one, no, one has ever, no one has tried to stop it since then. And so, what happened was that, not that the internet was weaponized, it's just that we forgot the internet's history. And that's it. I, it seems as if there are people out there who are in a wartime mentality, 
and they are at war with something, and they're doing lots of battles, and they have a war mentality. And the internet allows them to come into our homes. Mm. So we end up with people with a war mentality and an awareness of how to act in war, and people who are watching The Simpsons, um, <laughs> yeah. and something happens. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I don't know if you've hung out on Twitter, but that's, it seems like a bloodbath every, every second, you know? Um, I think there's something about, you know, there's, there's a couple of different elements to that. I think, of course, the internet, from the very beginning, right, it's an American technology. And I think that as, as, some, as people who, who are in America and who, who grew up with the internet as kind of an organic thing that sprung up out of American culture, that uses American terminology, I mean, of course, of course the internet is, very, is in English, you know, it's all the, all the words, you know, just down to the, the URLs and the sort of the address space and, and all the terms associated with the internet are American and some of them are actually specifically, you know, Californian. So it's this thing that um, it's easy to forget that when it began to expand from, from America and began to be commercialized, because the internet was privatized in, in, in the late 80s uh, and it would was made commercial. Um, that's a, kind of a longer story that I address here because it's pretty complicated. But it started to go into the world. And, you know, it was to, to I think a lot of people uh, who aren't in America, uh, you know, and, and the internet was always a foreign presence. It began, it began you know, it, people got used to it very quickly, but, it, but the internet is not something that organically spread for, started with them in their societies but came from without into their, into their world. And so what I think people are feeling now is an essentially a globalization of the internet, a, a full adoption of the internet, and that, and that America is no longer the, the, the kind of the, the country that only sends out, but it also receives certain things. And I, I'm not sure if I'm correctly addressing, totally addressing your question about this feeling of being kind of attacked or that there's people coming in with a war mindset, mentality, um, and you feel like you're just watching you know, you're just watching The Simpsons and suddenly, you know, you're being attacked for, no, for seemingly no reason. I think this feeling is, is kind of, there's a bit of like, a, I don't even know what you call it, like a, I don't know if it's a, if it's a, if it's a, a kind of a, a wave that's reflecting back or a backwash of sort of, of the internet or whatever the hell it is, is, is this feeling of that the sending out is not one way anymore. That other societies are sending stuff back sometimes, you know? Um, and I think that this is what's kind of happened and, and to, to, to whatever degree, um, you know, uh, sort of the foreign countries are coming in or foreign entities are, are coming into the American internet space. This is, this is the first realization, I think, of, for America that, like, that America isn't just the broadcaster of things anymore. I don't know if that ex ex explains your, your question, um, addresses your question, but that's all I got. You have explained, and many of us have lived through what has happened to us. Would you give us your ideas of what we should fear in the future? Well, it's a good. Question. Well, I, I, I mean, in, in the in the ranking of fear of, of problems, I think the internet is probably your least concern. Is probably you know, um, but I, I definitely wouldn't. I wouldn't fear the outside threat that much because I think it's overblown. 
Um, and I think it's actually used as cover for domestic problems for the most part. I mean, if we're talking about the same thing here. Um, this, so this, this, this constant threat of, of foreign interference in, in American society or in the American democratic process um, that we've been hearing, you know, since 2016, it's gone to, to complete, you know, to turn up to 11. Um, I think that's, that's not the biggest fear, and I think it's, 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 it's really an issue, but I think it's being used, what you should fear is that being used to cover for domestic problems and from, to not address those problems. As, always to look at for the outside threat, the foreign threat, um, the external threat to your society rather than addressing um, sort of domestic political problems. So I think that a lot of the, the um, uh, the fear about the internet being subverted and being weaponized by outside actors or uh, foreign, foreign states and foreign governments is really um, a kind of a cop-out, a kind of inability to de deal with political problems domestically, your own political problems. And so I think that's, um, that's to me, is the biggest fear, is, the, is when um, the internet is used as a way to scare people into, into directing their attention away from their own world, or their own society, their own country, to some outside threat that 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 is um, you know that is uh, threatening to, to 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 your way of life, uh, and it's a pretty classic model. I think it's been used time and time again, but I think the internet is being used that way, um, and a lot of the panic around it, I think, is 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 um, is is being driven by that, whether it's on purpose or sort of out of out of a kind of. Um, just a knee-jerk reaction, but I think that's 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 the biggest problem is the use of it as, as a propaganda tool. Um, I think you were next. Um, you said that we don't it's like the internet's not a place where we actually have much power and more just users. Yep. No. Um, I, I can I can repeat your question. Uh, go to that one, yeah. Um, you said that the internet's uh, not a place where we actually have much power, we're just users on it. Mm -hmm. um, to what extent do we feel like we have power on the internet because we're able to voice our opinion? And if we were to realize that we don't have any power on it, to what extent are we dependent on the path that technology has like led us on? Um, if we were to say just stop using all social media, are we too dependent on the technology to reverse progress? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I think, you know, there's been, a, there's been this kind of movement. You know, you don't really know that you have something until it's taken away from you. And what, I think it's important to remember that, I mean, we have about as much a right to be on the Internet. And, and I mean, the Internet, you know, taken as a whole, so with the Internet is large, it has, there's the ISP, plat, you know, the ISP providers, the Internet service providers, there's Facebook, Twitter, you know, there's your Apple phone, there's your Android phone, there's your Google. All those platforms that we take for granted, I mean, they are, we have as much a right to be on there as we have, I don't know, in a shopping mall or in a Walmart. In the sense that everyone can go to a Walmart, you're not banned from going to Walmart until you are banned for whatever reason, right? You don't have a right to be there. And of course, you know, Walmart may not be, um, I mean, in some communities actually it's, it's, it's vital to, to, to life because there's nothing else around. And, you know, if you, don't, you can't go to Walmart, there's nothing else for, for, for maybe, you know, dozens and dozens of miles around uh, your community. And, and, and there is no right to the internet. 
there's no right to use the internet. Uh, and so we've been seeing it, things happening. Um, I think it's primarily against sort of the, the, the sort of toxic right wing, the alt right, there are people have been being deplatformed. Um, and it's, um, and Silicon Valley companies have essentially uh, taken you know, unilateral action against certain individuals and decided that they are not acceptable on the platform. And a lot of people celebrate that. And of course, you know, a lot of these people have espoused politics and views that I personally abhor and I don't agree with. But the question is, is the right, you know, we, the internet has become vital to expression and vital to uh, American society and to modern society and to democracy even. If you can't run, if you're running a political campaign, let's say, or you're a political candidate and you can't use Facebook or you can't use social media, then you might as well not exist, right? And especially if you can't buy uh, space uh, ads on TV or radio. Um, is it right that these private companies uh, that have so much power, that we've delegated so much power to these companies to decide who gets to stay on and who gets to stay off, right? And, you know, a lot of people cheered these decisions by, by Silicon Valley to, to, to boot, you know, people like Alex Jones and there's all a bunch of other sort of right-wing guys that they, that, they, um, that they kicked off the platforms. But to me, it, it signals how much power these companies have and how much unilateral power they have and how much we've essentially outsourced decisions that we should make as a society to these, to these you know, for-profit corporations. Uh, and so uh, it, you ask a very difficult question. Um, when the internet is so vital to, 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 to lead, a, you know, to lead a, a life in modern America, you can't just get off the platform because even if you get off the platform, what, I mean, you still have to use the phones, you know, you still have to use Google, you still have to use Apple. These are Silicon Valley companies. Uh, they're not just social media companies, and we don't really have, uh, uh, you know, uh, any other choices. And so I think, um, uh, I think I could maybe use an, another drink, but, but uh, what, I, what I really think is that uh, it's, it's true. It, 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 it's a problem that has to be addressed politically, that these companies sh shouldn't have unilateral power to decide who gets to stay on the platform and who gets to stay off the platform and what's acceptable speech. I mean, they're essentially regulating speech on the internet. And we've outsourced that function, uh, First Amendment function, to private corporations, which I think is extremely worrying. And, um, and again, um, no one's really tackling that. There isn't really much of a movement to tackle this, this important issue of how do we who gets to decide what's, what's proper speech uh, and what's improper speech on the internet? And right now we've outsourced it to private com companies, so. Oh wow, it's, now this one's off. Uh, this microphone seems to be not working. Just yell. <laughs> it's, it must be Google doing this, yeah. <laughs> it, so wait, so if you go there, is that one going to stop working and then this one? Okay. Wow, yeah, it's true. Well, um, now that we've entered a society where the internet is so deeply ingrained into everything we do, what, what are we supposed <laughs> to do as individuals to 
become less frightened, I suppose, of the power that these corporations do have the ability to take away from us? I, as individuals, we have no power. I think, it's, I think that's important to realize. I mean, because we are just one person out of you know, billions that use these platforms. I think uh, this issue is fundamentally a political issue, which means it's a collective issue. Um, and you know, the internet again was predicated, um, the internet revolution and, and, and the promise of this new utopian world that it was gonna create was predicated actually on a very anti-political uh, idea of, of society where you know, it's that technology would replace politics essentially, that we would need politics because we had technology. Um, and actually, we're in a place where the opposite is true. Uh, we, as individuals, we have no power. But collectively, we do have power. Um, you know, there is still a semi-functional government that, 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 <laughs> that could be seized you know, in some way and used. Um, but it's very difficult because I think that on the, on the scale, again, you know, when we talk about the scale of political issues, the internet uh, seems pretty low on that scale. You know, there's all sorts of other things. You know, there's there's you know jobs. You know, uh, getting having a job. There's healthcare. There's you know these two things are really high, and and even those things are almost outside the reach of the political of, of any of people to, to have to influence politically. You know, healthcare is a, is a great example of that. You know, for decades, people have wanted affordable healthcare, and it's gotten it's gone the other way, uh, and so even something as as life and death as as healthcare and access to affordable healthcare and access to healthcare at all has been sort of outside of our political reach. Uh, it doesn't really give, give much confidence to the fact that we'd be able to do anything about the internet just because it's so, it seems at least so low on, on, on the poll. But I think, you know, the internet shouldn't be seen uh, as separate from other political issues. I mean, the, the reason why, um, giant corporations and monopolies and intelligence agencies and spies, the reason that these elements dominate the internet is because they dominate society. Um, not just the internet, but society in general. Uh, these are driving forces in our society, corporations and uh, the military industrial complex. You know? um, and they're actually, in a lot of ways, one force. Uh, and so the fact that this reality is reflected on the internet it shouldn't be surprising because the internet isn't something that floats above the world. It isn't something that's abstract. It's, it's part of the world. It's part of our culture. And so I think you know, the fight or the attempt to, to somehow uh, wrangle the internet into some kind of democratic um, position <laughs> um, is part of a larger struggle against corporate power and against the power of the national security state. So, uh, so it's, it, it's weak only when it's seen as separate. It's, it's stronger when it's part of a larger uh, political program that addresses those issues. I um, understand that Russia is testing the deployment of a separate internal internet that can be disconnected from the general internet, separate IP addresses, everything, I think. I think maybe China may be doing the same thing. Can you comment on how you expect that to change this whole environment? Yeah. It's pretty interesting because, you know, the internet, as it was sort of uh, envisioned, has a unified, um, you know, uh, 
naming namespace, meaning that um, it's not broken up by countries or you know, uh, it's 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 it, there's a there's it's a one-world internet on an architectural level, um, and that internet is, is an American internet. And so when the internet started going global, um, the first country that really started to uh, understand that and and was in a position to do something about it, uh, to understand that the internet is not some kind of um, you know, idealistic technology, but part of American power and very much intertwined with American power and geopolitical power was China. And it was in the early 2000s it began to, excuse me, it began to create, you know, what, what's popularly called the Great Firewall of China and to essentially separate its, not, not cut itself off, but put a, a kind of a, a firewall and a barrier between its national internet and sort of the global internet. Um, so what Russia is doing, you know, it, it, it's, it seems to be something similar, but it, it springs from, uh, I think, a fundamental uh, skepticism now of, of and, 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 and the, um, the understanding that the internet, again, this disillusionment with, with the, the promise of the internet, that the internet isn't some kind of utopian technology, but is actually an instrument of American power and can be used um, politically against American rivals. And so America, uh, Russia is doing that. And yeah, I, 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 I could see you know, the internet fragmenting more as, 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 um, as we go you know, into the future. Um, but this just represents a kind of, mm, rather than some kind of fundamental shift from sort of what, what political reality, this actually reflects much more um, the on-the-ground reality of, uh, you know, of, of, of geopolitics, right? Countries have their borders. They have different laws within those borders. Uh, they defend their sovereignty in, 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 in whatever way they can. Sometimes they can't really defend their sovereignty. And so the fact that the Internet is starting to break up along those lines, along those geopolitical lines, is not surprising, um, given that the Internet in its, in its mature state is more and more and more being used as a, as, as, as a, as a weapon, as a geopolitical weapon. And, you know, with this, what's happening in, you know, 2016, after 2016, I could see actually America doing something similar here, um, here right here, and essentially protecting itself from outside interference. I don't think that's, I don't think that's very far-fetched. Um, I don't know, we're not there yet, but but because, be, be, largely because uh, Silicon Valley, uh, they're global businesses, and they actually want to expand their businesses as much as possible. And so, um, yeah, but let's put it this way. Imagine if, let's do a little thought experiment. Imagine if um, all our phones, Apple, Android, uh, Microsoft, uh, all, all the computer components and all the com companies that make them were actually Russian companies. And that when you launched Apple, it was, it was all that stuff was being sent to, to Russia. You know? And this is just a normal way of doing things. Do you, how, how long do you think America would stand that? I mean, we don't have to guess because we can see what, what's going on with China now, right? Uh, Chinese uh, manufacturers are being banned from, from the market or being held away from the market. So, we, again, in America, it's easy to see the internet as this kind of like neutral platform that isn't tied to any kind of interests, uh, national interests or geopolitical interests. But from the other side, when you're, when you're looking at the internet from abroad, it is a very cl clearly, you know, Google is an American company. Twitter is an American company. Apple is an American company. Even Adobe 
let's say, right, is an American company. And you know, Adobe makes Photoshop, uh, Premiere, you know, editing, video editing software, and all sorts of other things, Acrobat. And uh, just recently, they, um, they've, um, they've started complying with the sanctions against Venezuela. So customers, Adobe customers in Venezuela who were paying subscriptions to their service got notices that their subscription was being canceled because they had to comply with American sanctions against that country. And so when you're looking at the internet and American tech companies from abroad, you see them very clearly as uh, extensions of America and American empire, whatever you want to call it, you know, American geopolitical interests, American political interests, uh, American national security interests, whatever. Um, and so it's easy for us to forget that here, sitting here, because it just, it's from, from where we sit here, it's it just, it just the internet, right? But just to imagine it happening the other way, and you'd immediately understand that, wait a minute, people would be up in arms about this. I mean, we'd probably have, you know, probably be, you know, going back to like uh, male pigeons or whatever, you know, if, 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 if Russia had actually owned the internet or controlled the internet in the way that America does, not owned the internet, but controlled so much of the internet through the platforms that American companies provide. So, yeah. Again, I'm not sure if I answered your question, but I said something, and that's the most important thing. So, so uh... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we could end on a hopeful note. Um, you know, I couldn't help but thinking when I was looking at your Lockheed Martin slide, you know, uh, and the, the, the predictors of human behavior, I was thinking of Isaac Asimov or, you know, or the foundation and, you know, psychohistory. But my question is, ultimately, how, um, you know, one of the motifs, I guess, if you will, of a dystopian novel is most of the people in the dystopia don't know that they're in it, right? How do we raise consciousness? about these problems um, in a way that we can kind of get to the collective action that you spoke about earlier? Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's a, how do we raise consciousness? I mean, I think you can apply that question to a lot of political problems. Sure. And I, again, I, 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 I go back to this point where I think the internet is pretty abstract to most people. You know, I get, unless you're caught into the, in the crosshairs of this stuff, it can seem you know, very distant. Um, and so I, I'm not so sure. I think the internet will only be reformed in whatever way it's going to be reformed because again, that, will, that changes based on um, you know, what, what people think the internet should be, what kind of values should be the internet should embody. And I think this is, this is the key, maybe even like a more fundamental um, aspect or answer to your question was that before raising consciousness, right, we have to understand figure out for ourselves what we want from the internet. What, is, what does an internet mean for us? Like, uh, if we believe we have certain values, how does the internet embody those values? If we believe in a democratic society, um, what does an internet look like that embodies a democratic society? All right? We don't even know that, right? I mean, maybe the internet shouldn't even exist in that kind of society. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's an option, but there's not even that conversation. So we're always catching up to this, whatever the latest technology is, we're always catching up and trying to fix, you know, tinker at the edges around it, but we don't actually fundamentally talk about what does that, what should that technology be like to serve a certain social and political function in our society, partially because we don't know what kind of society we want, you know? And I, and I, and I think that's even a more fundamental question, is like, what kind of society would, do we want to live in? And so we're, we're talking about now a couple of, um, you know, uh, degrees removed from the original problem but I think you can't really get to that original problem without going those degrees. And 
and it's not just with the internet, I think. I think it's, it, that's a larger kind of, we, we see that, I think, in, in all sorts of aspects of, um, of our society. We're seeing things fail in, in, in these fundamental ways, um, you know, from the environment to, to um, I mean, to, I don't know, uh, the, the, the presidency, I don't know. Like, uh, uh, and, you know, and so we don't, we don't really know what, the, what to do, partially because we're tinkering at the edges always. And, um, and so that's my non-answer to your question. <laughs> Is that it? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Please join me once again in thanking Yash Levine. I know you'll want to continue the conversation. Please join us in the lobby for a reception now and a book signing. Thanks very much. See you next semester. <laughs> <laughs>